One of the most common questions that we get asked is, how do we come up with topic ideas for the episodes? I mean, if you've been following us for a while, you know that we try to crank out an episode pretty frequently. So at some point, you'd figure that, man, we just kind of talked about everything. We don't have anything to cover anymore. And that's just absolutely not the case. I mean, there's always something to cover. So we get our ideas for our podcast uh, through several avenues. Uh, One of those is exactly what happened for this episode, which we're calling Daily Dilemmas, Easy Answers. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. But the first thing that guides our our agenda is the the is literature. We try to look out for things that are coming out in print, uh, early publications. We try to share it with you because we really want to be at the forefront of what's hot in press. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But that's our first thing. We always look to the data. The next avenue where we get some of our podcast ideas from is exactly how this episode came to be. And that's clinical practice. There's no shortage of interesting or odd stuff that we want to put out and share with everybody because there's always a learning opportunity most days. So that's exactly what happened with this episode. Today I was in procedure clinic, which is where we do our well our procedures and include some of our ultrasounds. And no joke, there was four really good things that happened today. I'm like, we've got to put this thing together. So that's our second avenue, and that's our clinical practice. The third are questions from residents or friends or from you all. So we get a lot of podcast topic suggestions, recommendations from our podcast family. So those are our main avenues. Those are our three main channels of what we figure out what we're going to talk about. Well, in today's episode, as I mentioned, we're going to discuss something that happened today because we had four really interesting conditions uh, or scenarios. I'm like, man, we've got to put this together. I'm sure others have questions like this. So the first thing we're going to tackle are variables on an NST. What do we do with that? And it's easier to go, well, if it's a variable, it's abnormal, and then we're done. But that's not necessarily the case. So there's a lot to cover there. So we're going to cover NST and variables. It's a bit, there's a lot to cover. So just follow me and stick with me for that. The second, we're going to cover polyhydramnios on a modified biophysical profile. So we are all taught, of course, that on a modified biophysical, which is the NST, and a fluid determination, preferably maximum vertical pocket. Uh, It's normal if there is fluid that is two centimeters or more as a maximum vertical pocket. But what happens when it's greater than a certain cutoff, like greater than eight? That's considered poly. Does that get the points designation or not? So we're going to talk about polyhydramnios on a modified biophysical profile. How do we grade that? Does that get two points or does it get a zero because it's not in the normal range of two to eight? The third thing we're going to cover and remind us all is the ultrasound criteria for what confirms or what redates an EGA. You're like, I get that. That's super easy. First trimester is one week. Second trimester is two weeks difference. Third trimester is three weeks. We all learned that as a basic kind of a, a rule of thumb that if the sono determination of EGA is more than one week in the first trimester, two weeks in the second, or three weeks in the third trimester from the LMP, then, then the sauna wins. And that's okay as a rule of thumb, but it's much more tight than that. Much more tight? Tighter? Much more tight? But one of those is <laughs> much more accurate <laughs> than that rule of thumb. So we're going to cover that. And then the fourth thing uh, is very easy to answer. It has to do with therapeutic anticoagulation after a C-section. Is that crazy or what? All these things happen today. 
So what happened is we got a patient uh, that had a stat C-section for a, a presumed abruption that ended up being a true abruption, entered the uterine cavity, and a lot of blood uh, and clots came out. And she was also being treated with Lovenox therapeutically because she had a true documented DVT. This wasn't a soft call. This was a known DVT. I mean, you could see it as legit. So she's on anticoagulation, has a stat section. And the question is, when can we resume therapeutic anticoagulation? And she did have an epidural. Right, so she had regional anesthesia. So those are our four things that we're going to cover. We're going to try to do this rapid fire, but man, there's a lot to cover. So variables on NST, abnormal fluid on modified biophysical profile. What do you do when the fluid is above eight? When normal is two to eight, we're going to talk about the, the very tight criteria of how to either confirm or redate an estimated gestational age, and therefore an EDD. Uh, based on ultrasound and LMP discrepancy. And the last thing is when to restart therapeutic anticoagulation after C-section. My goodness, that's a lot to do. I hope this thing isn't like 40 minutes long because our goal is to be 30 minutes-ish or less. So let's get started. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They're telling me that this is too much to cover on one episode. Relax, relax, guys. We're going to get it done. It's going to be fast, but we got lots to cover. So the first thing I want to tackle is NSTs and variable D cells. Totally happened today. And you may have heard, you know, the easiest answer is, oh, there's any variables. It's done. Uh, and it's abnormal. No, that's not necessarily correct. First of all, let's do NST very quickly. Remember that NSTs, of course, are a type of antepartum fetal surveillance. And most antepartum fetal surveillance tools, according to the college, can begin at 32 weeks and above. But in some very select cases, you can actually begin at the start of the third trimester, which is 28 weeks. The problem is because of some immaturity of the, of the fetal nervous system, you can get some erroneous reasons. There's some false positives that really don't mean anything. But in general, antepartum fetal surveillance begins at 32 weeks, although in select cases, you can start as early as 28. Remember that an NST, by definition, is two A cells that are 15 beats per minute for 15 seconds within a 20-minute interval. I think the NST, maybe because we just do it so frequently, it's just so common that we do the NST in obstetrics, but I think it's one of the least respected tests out there. Now, that doesn't mean we don't value it. We place a lot of value on the NST, but here's what I mean by less respected. We kind of take it for granted, but it's very similar to how we do a blood pressure read. So follow me with this. You just can't take somebody's blood pressure. I mean, the blood pressure has to be done with certain steps done correctly. The patient should be ideally sitting, legs not crossed, the arm should be at heart level, the cuff should be the appropriate circumference for the arm. I mean, there's, there's appropriate steps that have to be done or else we get an erroneous read. Well, the same thing applies for the NST. 
Today in Procedure Clinic, we had a patient on the NST machine, and we had a little variable D cell. We're going to explain that in a minute. But the patient was lying completely supine on her back. Well, that's not how it's supposed to be done. I mean, there's aortal cable compression. If you actually read the, the correct best practice, the, the, the instructions for the NST, here's what it says. This is right out of ACOG's practice bulletin on antepartum fetal surveillance, and that's number 229, right? 229. It states, quote, the patient should be positioned in either the semi-fowler position that's sitting with the head elevated about 30 degrees or lateral recumbent position. No, nowhere in there does it say the patient should be supine. So again, the patient should be either in a semi-fowler position, like basically sitting with the head elevated 30 degrees or in a lateral recumbent position, but definitely not supine. So one of the ways that the NST is taken for granted is do we really take the time to position the patient correctly? That's the first thing that's super important to do. The second thing is we, we kind of narrow down or water down the NST to two A cells in 20 minutes that are 15 by 15, right? 15 beats per minute uh, for 15 seconds. And we need two of those in a 20 minute interval. But it's much more complicated than that because that is the top line of the criteria. But you have to have the foundation that's correct first. In other words, the two A cells, 15 by 15, if you're above 32 weeks or 10 by 10, if you're between 28 to 32 weeks, that's the roof on the house. But you've got to have the four walls of the house built in order for you to read the A cells. And the four walls are normal rate, normal variability, absence of repetitive pathological D cells with now the two A cells that are 15 by 15 or 10 by 10 based on EGA. Does that make sense? So if you ever ask that, especially on the oral boards, tell me how you define a, a, a normally reactive NST. Please don't, don't say, uh, does two A cells 15 by 15? Because that's the roof. You haven't built the house. They need the four walls. So the correct, the complete answer for the NST is, oh, it's very easy. There's a normal rate, normal variability. There's absence of repetitive pathological D cells. And there are two A cells that are 15 beats per minute for 15 seconds, at least two A cells or preferably more, but all you need is two. And if you're between 28 and 32 weeks, then that A-cell excursion uh, drops down to 10 beats per minute for 10 seconds. All right, so don't forget the four walls. You need normal rate, normal variability, absence of recurrent pathological D-cells, and then the A-cells get added for the description. Notice that we're focusing on variable D cells, and that's the key there because variables can happen spontaneously, sporadically as a child grabs a cord or rolls over onto the cord periodically. Now, that's different than early D cells or late. So why are we not talking about those? Well, the answer is easy. This is a non-stress test, meaning she's not in labor. So if she's having regular contractions. You have to wonder, is this a contraction stress test or is she in labor? Or are you picking up uh, Braxton Hicks contractions? And based on their severity, you have to rule out that it's false labor and not true labor. Okay, so by definition, earlies and lates means that the patient's having regular predictable contractions. But that would not be an NST by definition, because an NST is without contraction. So this is why we focus on variables. But this has been looked at for a long time. And one of the chief articles that actually looked at this goes back to the 1980s by a name that you may recognize. And that's Paul Meese. Like, who's Paul Meese? Oh, man, really? 
Paul Meese was one of the lead authors on the progesterone study. Yeah, same guy. So you've got the progesterone study that, again, changed everything for preterm birth. Now we're back to zero. But nonetheless, it's that same author that published the, the incidence of variable D cells on an NST. And here's this publication. This publication was published in 1986. No, I wasn't in practice back then. I mean, give me a break. But 1986, I was in high school. Uh, This came out of the Gray Journal. The title was Variable Decelerations During Non-Stress Tests Are Not a Sign of Fetal Compromise. Well, that kind of spoils it, right? I mean, they put it right into the title. But Mies uh, et al. actually followed 908 fetal non-stress tests and found that 50.7% of them had brief variable D cells. So just about half or slightly over half, I mean 51%. And what he found is, hey, if there's these brief little variables, especially if they're under 30 seconds and they're not repetitive, they mean absolutely nothing. They said, quote, We find no evidence to suggest that these brief variable D cells are a sign of fetal compromise or an indication for obstetrical intervention, end quote. Now, that's, of course, if they're isolated and very brief. However, if they are recurrent, then it does trigger an evaluation of amniotic fluid because it could be oligohydramnios, either from rupture or from utero placental insufficiency. Not that it's always related to that. I mean, there's body cords, nuchal cords, and and that has to be evaluated. Sometimes you can see that on ultrasound with color Doppler, uh, and sometimes you can't. On to say, if it is less than 30 seconds and non-recurrent, if it's isolated, pretty much means nothing. In our case today, the patient was supine and had a D-cell, so we put it on her side and it just went away. Now, this D-cell was a little bit larger. It was more than 30 seconds. It actually was about 40 seconds, uh, so it made us a little bit nervous, but it was isolated, never happened again. And then, of course, we checked the amniotic fluid, and it happened to be poly. That's our second question that we're going to answer after this one, but we'll get to that in a minute. The short answer is, if it is a small variable defined as less than 30 uh, and it's isolated, that has no clinical meaning. So as long as you meet the other criteria for the NST, you should be fine. If they are recurrent, then it triggers at the least uh, an, an assessment of amniotic fluid. And you can continue the NST for another 20 minutes up to 40 max. Remember, at the end of 40 minutes, you have to cut it off and you have to do something, either keep her for prolonged monitoring uh, IV hydration, if there's borderline fluid and there's prematurity, you have to do a further assessment. And of course, it's a very, if it's a deep variable, uh, then definitely keep her on the monitor for at least 40 minutes and then consider bringing her back in 24 to make sure that there's no deterioration in the NST. So the short answer is if somebody says, oh, any variables on the NST is abnormal and that's a fail, not the case. If they are isolated, non-recurrent, and less than 30 seconds, according to Mies back in 1986 and a variety of other publications since that, these are of no clinical significance. So remember our patient today, she had her NST, was lying completely supine through an isolated variable D cell. We put her on her side, it went away, then we checked the fluid. And that leads us to our second question. What do we do when the maximum vertical pocket, which is favored by ACOG and SMFM over a full AFI, just a maximal vertical pocket or single deepest pocket, whichever term you want to use is the same thing. What happens when that fluid is normal, it's greater than two, but 
it's outside the range of a normal isolated maximum vertical pocket. Remember that a normal MVP or single deepest pocket SDP is between 2 centimeters and 8 centimeters. Fine. But what happens on the modified biophysical profile? And remember that that's the NST as the acute marker and then the fluid check as a chronic marker. What happens when the fluid is above 8? In other words, there's polyhydramnios. Does that earn a point or not? So in the modified biophysical profile scheme, each one of the two criteria still get either a zero or a two, like in a full biophysical, right? So like a LAPGAR, there's no one, it's all or none. So it either gets a zero or it gets a two. So in our case, we did grant the NST a 2 because it met the other criteria for a reactive NST. The NST had that one isolated variable with prolonged monitoring, so it still met reactive criteria. So that's a 2. But what about when the fluid is above? Does that get a 0 or does that grant a 2? So that's a basic question. You see, you always think you know that, right? Oh, I, I got that. And then you think about it, you're like, huh, what is that? Does that get a 2 or not? But before I answer that question, let's talk about why we do the modified biophysical profile when I'm in clinic, all right? So if somebody does a full biophysical profile, I think that's fantastic. It's a great skill to do. You need to know how to look for gross body movements, diaphragmatic excursion, uh, tone. Those are important. But according to ACOG and SMFM, don't be fooled by a full biophysical profile that it's somehow, somehow somewhat better or more predictive of fetal safety as compared to a modified biophysical when you just do two, two units, all right? The NST and the fluid check because they have the absolutely same rate of stillbirth in the face of a normal result. Let me explain what that means. The rate of stillbirth corrected for lethal congenital anomalies or unpredictable causes of fetal demise per thousand is 0.8, whether it's a full biophysical profile, the four ultrasound markers and the NST for all five units, or the modified, just the NST and the fluid check, 0.8 per thousand. But remember that that stillbirth rate of 0.8 per thousand is only for seven days from the day of the test. After that, it kind of loses its protective value. But speaking of stillbirth rate in the face of a negative test, what's the stillbirth rate per thousand for a reactive NST? Well, that's also in the ACOG practice bulletin. The stillbirth rate in the face of a reactive NST is 1.9 per thousand. So it's still very good. But you see why people like the modified BPP? Because if you add the fluid check, you go from 1.9 per thousand, drop that down to 0.8 per thousand. The lowest stillbirth rate is with a contraction stress test because you actually put the baby on the treadmill, so to speak. And that stillbirth rate is 0.3 per thousand in the face of a reassuring CST. But obviously, we don't do CSTs very often outside of what we call a trial of induction. All right. So remember, it is 1.9 per thousand for an NST stillbirth rate of 0.8 per thousand for a full biophysical profile or a modified and then 0.3 for the contraction stress test. Now that we've covered the stillbirth rate with these antepartum fetal surveillance tools, what do we grant that fluid assessment on a modified BPP when the fluid is normal? It's above two, but it's way normal. It's more than normal. It's above eight. Remember that that range of a normal maximal vertical pocket is two to eight. Well, according to ACOG, SMFM, and even perinatology.com, 
the value of the modified biophysical profile is in ruling out oligohydramnios. So as long as the fluid is above 2, that earns the points designation of 2. So in our case, the NST was reactive. That was 2 points. The fluid was above 2 centimeters. That's 2 points. So the modified biophysical profile, remember both scores have to be normal to be considered a pass, was 4 out of 4. So that was a pass. But that's where it gets the asterisk. And the asterisk by the deepest vertical pocket said, hey, there's moderate uh, polyhydramnios here by our single deepest pocket. So this requires reassessment. And we counsel the patient of the potential increased risk of preterm birth and uh, pre-labor rupture of membranes. So the short answer is yes. Even though it's greater than eight, it still gets a two-point designation either in a full biophysical profile or for the modified because as long as it's more than two, you have ruled out oligo, which is really what you're looking for. All right, podcast family, we are 50% down. We've covered two of the four items that we said we were going to cover. We did the variables with the NST and then whether or not the two-point designation goes when the fluid is above the certain cutoff. And the answer is yes. So next, let's cover ultrasound gestational dating and when to redate based on last menstrual period and ultrasound EGA discrepancy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're thinking, why the heck are we covering this? I mean, everybody gets that. If there's a stinking size discrepancy with the ultrasound and the LMP, you just redate it. Fine, but here's what happened today. So somebody approached me and said, hey, Dr. Chapa, before we go in and do that dating, let me just recap something real quick. If uh, if the Sano doesn't agree with the LMP in the first semester by one week, then we change it, two weeks in the second, and then by three weeks off in the third, and then we have to redate, correct? So one week, two weeks, three weeks, first, second, and third trimester. That's what I learned as well. And that's a great rule of thumb. It's okay as a ballpark, but it is nowhere close to being accurate. There really is much more fine-tuning here than the one-week discrepancy in the first trimester, two weeks in the second, and then three weeks in the third, that we have to review this. And this is what I did with this provider today. Because this ultrasound is so precise, especially early on in the first trimester, and there's so much riding on getting the dates correct that we just can't eyeball it with the one-week, two-week, and three-week thing. We just got to learn it correctly the first time. So let's start with the first trimester because, of course, ultrasound is the most sensitive for EGA determination in the first trimester. But even there, saying, oh, it's just a one-week discrepancy, then we're going to redate, that still waters are down because it's much more conservative than that. It's much more tight than that. So let me explain. Of course, the first trimester is up until 13 weeks and six days. Well, if the ultrasound disagrees with the LMP by more than five days up to nine weeks or actually eight weeks and six days just remember nine weeks it's five days difference so if the sono disagrees by the lmp by five days up to nine weeks then you have to redate 
and then comes in the seven days discrepancy allowance up until 14 weeks. All right. So remember five days and then seven days, five days up until nine weeks. And then from nine weeks to 14 weeks, then that's where you get the seven days, the one week. But you see how saying, oh, it's just first trimester. It's a one week discrepancy overall. No, no, no. It's five days allowance. LMP has to agree with the EGA by crown rump length by five days up to nine weeks and between nine weeks to 14 weeks, then it's seven days. So five and seven. In the second trimester, you're going to see why using just a two-week spread from everybody in the second trimester, which is 14 weeks, all the way to 28 is really incorrect. So in the first trimester, we've got two allowances for discrepancy, five days and seven days. In the second trimester, remember this, we've got three levels of discrepancy. I promise, I promise, I'm going to teach it to you. You're never going to forget. So in the second trimester, which spans from 14 weeks until 28, the three levels are 7, 10, and 14. 7, 10, and 14. In other words, between 14 weeks and 16, so for those first two weeks of the second trimester, if the SANO disagrees with the LMP by seven days, that's redated. Look at that. That's one week. And so we're, if we just group everybody in the second trimester's two weeks allowance, we're really, really incorrect. Y'all get that? So between 14 and 16 weeks, if the SANO composite. So that's, again, the BPD, head circumference, abdominal circumference, and femur length. If that is a discrepant amount in the composite EGA by more than seven days from the LMP, that has to be redated. So look, we're in the second trimester and we're still with the one week spread. You all see why it's tighter than just saying one week discrepancy in the first, two weeks discrepancy in the second, and then three in the third. So remember, there's three tiers of discrepancy allowed in the second trimester. Between 14 and 16, it is seven. Then between 16 and 22 weeks, it is 10 days. It only becomes 14 days, the two weeks discrepancy, between 22 and 28 weeks. Wow, you all see that? So if you just remember the one week, two week, and three weeks, you're robbing patients of accurate dating. So remember, first trimester is a recap, two tiers of discrepancy, five days and then seven. And then in the second trimester, we have three tiers, seven, 10, and 14, seven, 10, and 14. The first two weeks allow for seven days discrepancy. Then between 16 weeks and 22 weeks, it is 10 days. And between 22 weeks and 28, it is the full two weeks, 14, seven, 10, and 14. That leaves us with a third trimester, and that's easy because a third trimester is just not accurate at all. So all of the third trimester from 28 weeks and beyond is the three-week discrepancy. So that one's easy. So first trimester, two tiers of discrepancy. Second trimester, three tiers of discrepancy, seven, 10, and 14. Seven days between 14 and 16 weeks. 10 days between 16 weeks and 22 weeks of gestation, and then 14 days, the full two weeks, from 22 weeks until 28 weeks. The reference for that strict criteria for discrepancy application is ACOG's Committee Opinion Number 700 from May 2017. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. I told you we were going to go fast. That brings us to our last of our daily dilemmas. This has to do with the optimal time to start thromboembolism prophylaxis or treatment after cesarean section. And in our case in particular, this was a therapeutic dose of Lovenox because the patient had a documented DVT. She had the abruption, if you remember from the intro. So the question was when to restart her on therapeutic Lovenox after she had her C-section with regional anesthesia. All right, well, let's get to it. For low molecular weight heparin, the recommendations to consider are the time when the neuraxial block was performed pre-op and the time when the catheter was removed post-op. Prophylactic doses of Lovenox at 40 milligrams sub-Q every day can be started post-op as early as four hours after catheter removal, but not earlier than 12 hours after the block was performed. But our patient was not getting prophylactic dosages. She was getting therapeutic. So the recommendation for therapeutic dosages after C-section is the same as intermediate dosages. Intermediate dosages of Lovenox are about 40 milligrams sub-Q every 12 hours. And then therapeutic, of course, is a 1 milligram per kilo BID. Well, if it's intermediate or therapeutic, they can also be started as early as four hours after catheter removal, but not earlier than 24 hours after the block was first performed. Remember, for prophylactic dosages, it was not earlier than 12 hours, but for full therapeutic dosages, they have to wait 24 hours after the block was first performed. That's for Lovenox. If you're using prophylactic dosages of unfractionated heparin, that can be started as early as one hour after removal of the neuraxial catheter. Of course, most people now use low molecular weight as opposed to unfractionated heparin just because it's easier dosaging and you don't have to keep following PTT levels. The reference for that recommendation is SMFM consult series number 51. Now a quick word about Lovenox and breastfeeding. Because of the large molecular weight of Lovenox, which is 2,000 to 8,000 Daltons, enoxaparin is not expected to be excreted into breast milk or to be absorbed from breast milk by the infant. For those of you that are saying, well, wait a minute, she's postpartum, why not switch to something like Eliquis? It's so much easier to take. It's totally easier to take. However, we just don't have the volume of safety data for breastfeeding like we do for Lovenox. Now, if the patient is not breastfeeding, then that's a non-issue. Then, yeah, I'm all for it. Hey, put her on Eliquis. That's fine for the treatment of acute DVT. However, if she is breastfeeding, even though there's been no reported adverse events in women that take Eliquis and breastfeeding, we just don't have the volume of safety data like we do for Lovenox. So, in general, it is not recommended to breastfeed with Eliquis, even though there's been no reports of of neonatal harm, but there's much more comfort and safety data regarding low molecular weight heparin in breastfeeding. Hey, no joke. I told you we were going to aim to do this like at 30 minutes, and I think we're going to end up being like right at 30 minutes and change. How about that? Anyway, I hope you found this podcast helpful. This has been a quick review of daily dilemmas and quick answers. As always, we're thankful for you. Thanks for your messages and for reaching out. And we're thankful that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.